Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all humankind. From where he sits enthroned, he watches all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. Truly, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. This is the word of the Lord. If you read my column in our church paper this week, you know that I was quoting Dr. John Buchanan. Dr. John Buchanan is pastor of the famed Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago, one of America's really great churches. It's located right on that magnificent mile that Oprah Winfrey mentions almost every day on her program. Beautiful church, terrific ministry in the heart of Chicago. Dr. John Buchanan was our Barton Clinton Gordy presenter back in 1991. We all got to hear him preach four important sermons that week. Uh, that we will never forget. We were truly blessed by him. In his column in the Christian Century, he was saying, every preacher knows how inadequate he or she feels on Easter Sunday. This story is so huge that we have no adequate way of telling it. We are grateful for those who help us. Great choirs, he said. Great hymns, pipe organ, brass instruments, all help us tell this story. And then he said from time to time when I whine about feeling inadequate to preach on Christmas or Easter, my closest advisor, his wife he means, always says to me, John, keep it simple. We just want to sing the hymns and hear the story. We just want to sing the hymns and hear the story. Then Dr. Buchanan mentioned in the last couple of sentences of that brief article, I remember John Updike saying in one of his poems, Don't be afraid to walk through that door. I remember when John Updike came to Tulsa. He was the Peggy Helmrich Author of the Year. One year, I was asked to say the invocation at that dinner. So Gail and I were seated near him. And while I was visiting with him, told him who I was, he said, I grew up Methodist. I said, and that means you're not one now. And he smiled and said, well, no, not quite, but close. He said, I married an Episcopalian. And she said to me, well, if you want to worship the way the Wesleys did, go with me to the Episcopal Church. And so all these years, he said, I've gone with her to the Episcopal Church. In one of his poems, he did in fact write, make no mistake, if Jesus rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules renit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might, new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping transcendence, making of the event some parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages, 
Let us not be afraid to walk through the door. Paul, who wrote long before the four Gospels were written, We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. And we shall be raised incorruptible. We shall be given a resurrection body, and we shall be raised incorruptible. When the trumpet shall sound, we shall be raised. Let's look at the text. This ancient poet wrote, God spoke and everything began to happen. God looks and sees all. God fashions the hearts of all. God sees all. Number one. The first thing that always needs to be said, it seems to me, is that we all experience the death of someone we love. Even members of this young choir have seen death this past year. The death of a classmate, a friend, brings death so real, makes it so very personal. And even though we all experience this a little bit differently, we can certainly learn from hearing others' experiences as they too face death. One of the very best books that I know is called Lament for a Son. It was written by Dr. Nicholas Wolterstorff. He taught for many years at Calvin College and then was invited to come and teach at Yale Divinity School. Uh, Dr. Wolterstorff got a telephone call from Austria. With that last name, you can tell there are certainly Austrian roots in the family. His and his wife's son, Eric, 25 years old, had gone to Austria to visit with friends and family and to climb in the Alps. And this caller said, Are you Dr. Nicholas Wolterstorff? I am, he said. Your son, Eric. There's been an accident. He has fallen. He has died. Dr. Wolterstorff said, that flight across the Atlantic seemed to take forever. Those long, dark hours as we flew across the Atlantic, I kept imagining, what happened? Our Eric was not an irresponsible young adult. He was a very responsible young man, so full of life. I could, I could imagine what he was looking at, this magnificent range of mountains, snow-capped, how he must have been so exhilarated. What happened? Did his foot step on a rock that wasn't so solid? Was there a little bit of sand on the trail? Who saw him? Who was with him? How far did he fall? How much did it hurt? How quickly did he die? Dr. Volterstorff, in his first days of grief, began to write down what he was feeling. I feel like an alien, he said. When one whom you love so much does not come home, your home has become only a house. Somehow I don't feel like I belong here either. He wrote a little later, I will see the world from this day on 
through tear-filled eyes, perhaps I can see some things I would not have seen dry-eyed. And then he wrote, I don't know if anyone actually saw Eric fall except God. I know God saw him fall, and I don't understand why he didn't rush in and catch him, why he didn't save him. There are some, he said, who say if God is so big that he could blast billions of stars into the heavens, then God must be impassive, beyond feeling about every little thing that happens. But that's not what I believe as I read this all-important book. I believe God wept that day. I I don't know why he didn't scoop him up, but I believe he wept. The only way my wife and I could move on was to believe that every time we wept, God also wept. If it broke our hearts and God is the one who fashioned all of our hearts, then it must have broken God's heart also. Such a talented, wonderful young man would not live a long and normal lifetime. Number two, not only do we lose people whom we love, but the thought comes so quickly, if I've lost one I love so much, I could lose somebody else. If I've lost my father, I will also lose my mother. If I've lost one friend, I'm sure to lose another. Always that that reminder that death doesn't come only to one, it comes to another and another. Three weeks ago, I went back to Beaumont, Texas to preach the Lenten series in the church I pastored before coming here. Uh, I preached one sermon there about 18 years ago, and I was invited back on the 50th anniversary of that church about four years ago, just for one night. But this time I was given five opportunities to preach in 48 hours. And so that was a very different kind of experience. And as I sat there that first Sunday evening, as the hymn service went on, many, many memories came back, of course. When it was my turn to step up into the pulpit, I looked out over the congregation. We've all aged a lot since then. It was 34 years ago I'd become their pastor. And those who were still there, I could recognize faces, faces, any number of faces, though they and I had aged a lot in 34 years I knew. I thought about the very first funeral I had at that church. The day we arrived, it was pouring down rain. Methodist preachers usually move on Thursday, and we had driven over from Houston to move into a parsonage we'd never seen to go inside a church I'd never been inside before. We went that way. The appointments made 34 years ago. We arrived in a downpour, pulled up in front of the church, and rushed in trying not to get too wet. And the secretary to the minister said, We have one man who is very ill. He's only 43. He's an orthopedic surgeon. He was diagnosed just a few days ago with liver cancer, but they say this is going to be really fast. 
And so I got Gail and our three small children at the time to the parsonage, and then I went to St. Elizabeth's Hospital to see this doctor. In fact, he did die within a week after I arrived. My first funeral at Trinity United Methodist Church in Beaumont. I remember it well, of course. A young widow, beautiful, talented, three children. The two older ones were elementary age, and they were understanding something about what death means. The youngest was only five, little Scott, five years old. Uh, He didn't understand at all. Uh, He was sort of excited by all the people who were coming to their home to visit, by all the food that was being brought in, lots of cookies and cakes. His mother was really concerned about how to help Scott, what to do about Scott. And she and I had a conversation, and I said, Scott does not understand, but he will come to understand gradually that his father is not coming home. And you know what's going to come into his mind then? What day will my mother not come home? And so you've got to be very careful these next few days and weeks to let Scott know where you are all the time. You explain it to him. You're going to stay with this person right now. I just need to go for about 30 minutes. You see, when the big hen gets back to 12, gets to 6, I will be back. And be sure you are. Be sure you are because he's going to be afraid that if his father suddenly quit coming home, his mother may suddenly quit coming home as well. You need to reassure him. She asked me those next couple of days, now what do I do about Scott? Now what do I do about Scott? There was a question, should he go to the funeral, not to the funeral? He wasn't really understanding so very much at five years of age. I said, Ask him, ask him, if he wants to be with you, be sure he is with you, right beside you. He decided he wanted to go, and she said, will you explain things to him? And I said, sure. And so I remember that conversation with a five-year-old child, telling him exactly what was going to happen next. We were going to the church, and what was going to happen at the church, and when we left the church, we were going to the cemetery out near the country club, and that we were going to take his father in this big, beautiful box, and we were going to put that box in the ground, but we were going to believe with all our hearts that God had already received his father into his everlasting arms. Scott seemed to do well. The service went along fine. We got to the cemetery, and everything seemed to go fine. And as we started to leave the cemetery... I saw little Scott pulling against his mother, pulling her hand, pulling away. And she, of course, in the depths of grief herself, was trying to deal with this unruly five-year-old. And I rushed over to her and I said, what's what's happening? And she said, he doesn't see the hole. She said, he doesn't see the hole. I said, let me. You go on to the car. It covered the hole with green carpet. And so what I told him was going to happen didn't seem to be happening, and he was troubled about that. And so I walked with him back under the tent, and I pulled the carpet back where he could see. And when he saw the hole, then he understood what I told him before. We're going to put this beautiful box down in that hole, and they're going to cover it over with dirt and then with green grass and with beautiful flowers on top. 
And you can come back later today or tomorrow, the next day. You can come back with your mother and visit here. But we're going to know that God has already received your father into his everlasting arms. Do you understand? Can you understand that, Scott? Even though it made God so very sad when your father died. He nodded his head. He's 39 now. He's a young physician himself. An outstanding young man. Who did in fact lose his mother a few years later to cancer. As he'd lost his father. Always, always, if I've lost one I love so very much, I, I could lose another, couldn't I? I could lose another. Number three. Inevitably, we come next to the understanding that I will die too. Not only have I lost somebody I love, and I will lose others whom I love, but I will die too. And how each of us comes to that moment, some may not see it coming. It may come so suddenly, so unexpectedly. Others will have a long time to think about it. As we age, as functions slow down, as we're not able to do things we could do before, not do them as well, everything we do makes us sore and achy. It's just not the way it was before. Aging, aging comes. It does. We live long enough. It just keeps on coming. And every morning, look in the mirror and we're older, older. And death is out there for us. No question. So how do we die? How do we die? Dr. Walter Bauman, professor of theology at a Lutheran seminary in Columbus, Ohio, Trinity Lutheran, a man who's given his whole life to teaching young men and women who are going into ministry, was recently diagnosed with inoperable cancer. He didn't stop teaching didn't plan a round-the-world cruise or anything. And when one of his dearest friends asked him, why don't you quit now and do something else? With whatever time you have left, why don't you take a trip? Why don't you go see something? Dr. Bauman said, I had mother and father who had great faith in God. When I was born, they had me baptized into the church. By the water of baptism, I was marked as a disciple, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was taken to Sunday school. When I got a little bigger, I was taken into the big church to worship. I was given a third grader Bible. I was sent to confirmation class. And I knelt at the altar of the church and said that the faith of my mother and the faith of my father... The faith of my grandparents was my faith, too. And one day I felt God calling me to be a professor, to, to teach other young women and men how to tell God's story. So you see, I've been betting my whole life that God's story is true. That God did, in fact, raise Jesus from the dead. And so, with my dying, I'm betting that Jesus will have the last word. I'll be in class again tomorrow, he said. To finish well, our prayer is that we 
finish well. Let's come to the last line we read from this great song. The eye of the Lord is on those who hope in his chesed, steadfast, constant, never failing love that he can save us from death. Five times I've been to Israel. Five times I've stood on the pavement that they tell you these stones are more than 2,000 years old in this place. They've been here more than 2,000 years. They will show you etchings into that stone, scratches made where Roman soldiers on duty played little games, uh, almost like rolling of dice and moving a little token around a board. This, this is where the soldiers work those long, dark nights. This is the place where Jesus was mocked, whipped, and led away to be crucified. Five times I've walked the Via Dolorosa, I've walked the Stations of the Cross from that pavement all the way to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where scholars believe Jesus was, in fact, buried. Just beyond the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, there is another tomb. This tomb, the Anglicans think, might have been the tomb. If it's not the tomb, then it certainly is a tomb of that period. It is like the tomb described in the Gospels. It was a garden belonging to a rich man. You can tell because when it was on earth more than a hundred years ago now, they found very expensive irrigation ditches. They found a huge underground cistern where rainwaters had been stored that could then irrigate a beautiful garden. There is in fact in that garden an unfinished tomb, partly chiseled out of solid rock wall, not quite finished, a track there, a track and a huge round stone looking sort of like a silver dollar that could be rolled into place over the mouth of the tomb. Five times it's been my privilege to celebrate the sacrament with those who were with me to say, this is my body, this is my blood. Eat, drink, as oft as you will, remembrance, remembering me, and I have believed in the resurrection. I have believed in this story so wonderfully told for us. I believe the love of God was present in Jesus Christ in a way it never had been present in any other human being or ever would be again except in Mary's child, Jesus. And that when the world had done the worst it knew how to do to him, on Sunday morning, God raised him from the dead. Kate Braystrup is a chaplain for the game wardens in the state of Maine. The game wardens, who not only try to keep people from fishing out of season, or killing more ducks or geese than they're supposed to kill, but in the state of Maine are often the ones who are looking for people who've gotten lost. Hunters, fishermen, hikers who've lost their way. People who ventured onto icy lakes before the ice was thick enough. People who ventured onto icy lakes too late in the coming spring when the ice was no longer strong enough. Wardens 
who have to come out of the woods, back from a frozen lake, and deliver really bad news to a family. Kate is their chaplain. She meets these wardens in the woods beside the rivers and lakes and goes with them to tell families what they found. But Kate's not always been a person of faith. In her book, she says that she didn't grow up in the church. She wasn't baptized as a baby. She wasn't taken to Sunday school and worship. She wasn't confirming her faith. She grew up. She had a good education. She married a young man who decided to be a state trooper, a highway patrolman. Over the years, four children were born to them. She believed her husband was a really outstanding state trooper. And after 20 years, said to her, I've done this long enough. I want to go to seminary and become a minister. Wow, what a change. What a new chapter in her life. But she tried to be supportive. She said, fine, that sounds like a great idea. And it was only a short time later he was killed in a horrible auto accident. That dream unfulfilled. She and the four children grieved his loss, grieved his loss, and Kate decided to go to seminary herself. And after she was ordained, she became chaplain to the wardens in the state of Maine. And her brother wrote to her and asked, Kate, do you really believe in God? And this is what she answered. It doesn't matter how educated, moneyed, or smart you are. When your child's footprints end at the river's edge, when the one you love has gone into the woods with a bleak outlook and a loaded gun, when the chaplain is walking toward you with really bad news, you will know enough to look around for love. It will be there, holding out its arms to you. And if you are wise, you will let go, fall against that love, and be held forever.